KYW Original Podcasts. Back by popular demand, KYW's Paul Kurtz. Hi, Carol. Hi, Paul. Thanks for joining <laughs> us. You're a reporter and anchor here at KYW. And on top of that, you're also an accomplished fantasy novelist. Our producer Tom told me to I say am? that. <laughs> uh, yes. He's referring to your my, book. My protagonist is the swarthy, tall, long-haired hunk. Just like you. Yes, just, just like, like you. Me. Well, that's a whole fantasy in itself, Carol. But uh, no, it's a, I wrote a book called 162 and 0, Imagine Philly's Perfect Season. That's a mouthful. I take a particular Phillies win, the best in their franchise history. I had to figure out which one it would be, and I write about that. Um, I'm told it's a great bathroom book. <laughs> Two, I was, the, the publisher said 200 that? words or less for each story. So what do you think? This is the year they do it, 162 and 0? No, Carol. This is not the year. <laughs> it w- <laughs> but it could very well be. I, I'm going to predict okay. that this will be the year they have a winning record for mm. the first time since 2011. So, I mean, they're in Clearwater right now, which, I, it, you know, that means spring mm-hmm. is right around the corner. Yes. Do you like what you're seeing down there? Yeah. Starting with the manager. I think everybody – I think everything is going to – going to work off the manager. I, I, I have a ton of respect for Joe Girardi. He, he won a World Series as a player, as a manager. He broke our hearts in 2009 with the Yankees. So the Phils won 81 games last year. I think Girardi alone it will get them five more, which puts them at 86 wins. They have new coaches, hitting and batting coaches. Andrew McCutcheon's coming back from a knee injury. Segura will be better because he said he stopped drinking whiskey. Have you lost 14 pounds? Yeah. We'll see when they're on the road sometime in June, and maybe he's got a little time on his hands after a game. (laughs) See if he falls off the wagon. (laughs) Scott Kingery will hopefully play all year at second base, and this Didi Gregorius guy is is getting rave reviews. So, yeah, I think they could win maybe 90 if they stay healthy. All right. So there's another story that has been developing during the offseason, and it involves – a beloved part of the team, a part that most of us couldn't imagine going without. The Philly Fanatic. And it's a story that's been kind of under the radar. Mike DiNardo, our colleague, did a story on it. I did a story on it as well. And it was kind of like, ha, 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 could the Fanatic be a free agent? We we laughed. But this thing's going to court. And 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 it's coming up in June. There, there's supposed to be a copyright deadline. It's all kinds of legal maneuvering and you know the fate of the philly fanatic i mean i think it's time to start taking this seriously he's a big green troublemaker but he's our big green troublemaker so what are the odds that 2020 is the fanatics last season in philadelphia this is kyw in depth i'm carol mckenzie All right, Paul, so before we tackle the future of the Philly Fanatic, let's go back a bit. When did the Fanatic first arrive in Philadelphia? Well, he took the train from the Galapagos Islands, uh, <laughs> then he hopped on a dinghy, and then, no, actually, I, I actually remember this. 1978, uh, I was in college. On April 25th, 1978, Dave Raymond debuted the Fanatic at a home game. We, we didn't think much of it at the time other, other than what ungodly thing is this this creature we are watching on the field uh, gyrating (laughs) 
and uh, kind of making us laugh. I don't, what, what is this thing? Uh, and it took a while. Didn't take too long, but I, I think by midsummer we're going. This, this, this dude's actually funny. Whatever it is, it's funny. Okay, so <laughs> besides the Galapagos Islands, where did the fanatic come from? Okay, rough timeline for you. In the 1970s, Bill Giles decided he wanted a mascot, actually another mascot. He had a couple, Philadelphia Phil and Phyllis, two colonial characters who are about as lame as you can get. They were stiff as boards, and nobody reacted to them. Uh, but uh, Giles had the—he he was a great, great promoter, um, and he knew they needed something better. So 1978 comes, and uh, enter Harrison Erickson. They're a design firm. Uh, those two are puppeteers. They make Muppets and sports mascots, and they designed the Philly Fanatic. Forty-plus years later, the Fanatic is still here, probably the best-known mascot in, in sports, really. And the thing is, he was an instant hit right right out of the gates. Yeah, he was. Uh, Dave Raymond, credit that guy, because he brought, the, he brought the costume to life. Dave was a great physical comedian, uh, Pratt Falls, and he also knew how to troll people before we knew what the word trolling was. Uh, he was terrific. The fanatic was terrific. Everybody did love him. And right now the fanatic is, uh, considered widely, if not probably the best baseball mascot in the country. And again, that's because of the antics, the mischief, you you know, I've had, I've had my bald dome rubbed by the mascot. It wasn't fun, but it was funny and he's goofy looking. Um, he's got, you know, I'm just thinking of the Tommy Lasorda. <laughs> There's a video that's still of uh, the former Dodgers manager, Tommy Lasorda, and the fanatic is mimicking Lasorda, who had a very distinctive pot-bellied walk. And one day he had it made a dummy of Lasorda, right? And, and, and he stomped on it, and Lasorda comes running out of the dugout and yanks the dummy Lasorda away from the fanatic. And I think... Somebody might have tried to steal the Fanatics' uh, motor scooter or whatever that was, but that was almost cryingly funny. So let's fast forward. Let's fast forward to today, present day, and the headlines, which are alarming to Phillies fans. And the headline is, the question is, could this be the last year of the Philly Fanatic? How do we get here? Yeah, so it's pretty complicated, but this has to do with the copyright on the Fanatic and a feud between the designers of the Fanatic and the Phillies. So a couple of years ago, Harrison Erickson, the designers we told you about, sent the Phillies a letter saying that they are taking back their copyright on the Fanatic this year, 2020. That's when the deadline hits. Phils responded uh, very seriously by suing Harrison Erickson in New York. They said, nope, we have the rights to the Fanatic. He is ours. So this kind of percolated in the courts for a few years. Uh, I think the public didn't think much of it, but, uh, the reason we're talking about this now is there is a copyright deadline in June. This is going down some way. This is going to go down. It may come down with a settlement. It may be, uh, some sort of ruling by a judge, but it's now kind of reached the serious point. Uh, I did a story last, uh, summer about it and it was kind of an, uh, fun based, but. I don't think it's fun anymore. This is getting serious. So big question mark now. Could this go to trial? Uh, will there be a settlement? And who will have the rights to the Fanatic, the team or the design firm? Uh, that's about all I know. You'll probably have to talk to a lawyer, somebody who 
uh, really has the, uh, the insight into this to get any deeper into it. Paul, thank you so much for joining us here in depth and lending us your expertise on the Phillies and the Fanatic. Always my pleasure, Carol. I hope this has a happy ending. Me too. Yeah. So Paul told us we needed an expert, and we realized we did because this is actually really complicated. So Charlotte and I packed up our gear, headed to Pepper Hamilton at uh, 2 Logan, a few blocks away from us, and we found a really good lawyer there who was able to dumb this down for us. So we walked in. We had to check in. They checked our IDs and gave us passes. Building's beautiful. Marble everywhere. And we took the elevator up to the 30th floor. Thank you. Gorgeous view. Hi. Hi. How are you? Good. How are you? Good. We're from KYW. We're here to see uh, Peter Rocky. You're Charlotte and Carol? Yes. Okay. Give me one second. I'll let them know you're here. Sure. Thank Thank you. He was uber prepared. He had the case. It was marked. He had a PowerPoint presentation. He was ready to go. Do you have the 1984 letter? I do. Thank you. Okay. Do you know of any meeting that happened recently? I can only, I'll show you what the docket reports the last entry in the docket, which was, I think, within a couple days ago. So the docket is public information. You can see, we can look at it. I didn't have a chance to look at everything in the last 24 hours. (laughs) Yeah. I wanted to talk with someone. The interesting thing is, and I, this made me feel a little better because I was reading through the the pleadings before we went in, thinking, "Holy cow, they're very long." And he, we walked in. He said, "This is a really complicated case," and I immediately felt at least a little better, not quite so stupid. Peter, thank you so much for making time for us today. We really appreciate it. Can you start by introducing yourself and telling us what you do? Sure. So as you said, I'm a partner here at Pepper Hamilton in the intellectual property department. Um, My practice area covers copyrights, trademarks, trade secrets. So I see a wide range of intellectual property related issues on a day-to-day basis. Can you kind of start with an overview of the case? And, you know, the alarming headline is, are the Phillies going to lose the fanatic? Yeah, so this is a complex case. There's a long history to the relationship between the parties. There's a lot of information that's been filed with the court. What I have looked at, um, I'll try to sort of simplify and summarize. So H&E takes the position that it was a sole developer, creator of the Philly Fanatic mascot as a sculptural work, because that's how they actually um, characterize the work when they obtain a copyright registration. The Phillies, on the other hand, are taking the position uh, that they were also a contributor to the um, creation of the mascot, and that as a result of that, uh, they were also a what's called under the law a, a co-author, uh, and therefore a co-owner in the copyright. Well, it centers on, Peter said, copyright and the copyright law, which allows basically the artist or the creator of the art a 35-year window in which they can basically take back the copyright. So if I sell, if I create something, I sell it to you and I have no idea what the value is going to be in 10, 20, 30 years. If, if it takes off and you're making gobs of money, what it allows me to do then is to share in that profit, is to take it back because it was really my creative property to begin with. Under the copyright law, section 203, as H&E has indicated in its, in its pleadings, uh, they've asserted their right to a what's referred to as a statutory termination of the transfer. Um, the Phillies have challenged that, claiming that 
the earlier termination of an initial license from H&E to the Phillies was the one and only opportunity that H&E had to terminate its licensing of the mascot, the Philly Fanatic mascot to the Phillies, and that it doesn't get, in my words, a second bite uh, uh, at the apple here. Um, H&E disagrees with that. So that's one of the issues in contention here, whether H&E has a valid legal basis for termination of the copyright transfer that appears to have taken uh, appears to have occurred under the 1984 agreement. It would be interesting to go back and talk to the lawyers who hammered out that agreement because you think they had to have known what the law said. The law was already in place. So this wasn't something that was enacted after that 1984 agreement was signed. So you wonder kind of what they were thinking. Um, And that's one of the issues in the case. Uh, The Phillies, of course, are asserting that this was supposed to be forever and that the agreement they claim uh, contains that language, but H&E's position that despite that language, they still had reserved this right. Here's where you get into the weeds in this story. The Phillies have trademarked the Fanatic, all the merch, basically, keychains, T-shirts, mugs, whatever. They've trademarked that. So they have the trademark on that merchandise, but H&E has the copyright on the costume. I tried to pin Peter down on this. Not successfully because I don't think he really knows because it's an interesting argument. It might be novel to this case. And Peter said he didn't know of any other case. It could be that there have been others, but they just sat down at the table and never got this far. It never Nobody sued anybody because they just agreed to kind of hash it out. But this is the first case, case that he knows of involving a major league sports team and their mascot and the outfit that made – the costume. So copyright law protects creative expressions reduced to a tangible medium. Trademark law protects words, phrases, designs, sounds, scents. So in this case, the Phillies have obtained federal trademark registrations for the word mark Philly fanatic. So you have the character, which is a creative um, expression, and then you also have uh, the word marks, which serve as trademarks. They're different. One is a copyright and one is a trademark. So there are creative rights at stake here. And there are also, I think, trademark rights that are at stake here because those trademark rights, I think, clearly have less value if they can't be used in conjunction with the actual physical embodiment of the character with which they're associated. So that is a an interesting um, aspect to this case, uh, the interplay and perhaps even conflict between the copyright position and the trademark position. So just for that purpose, so let's say this is still, nothing has happened and, you know, June rolls around, there's no agreement, there's no trial. And what could happen? I mean, does, could the Philly fanatic disappear? Well, but they have um, to pull them, I guess. There, I think there are all cases have a legal component to them and a practical component. And the, that deadline, I think, puts pressure on both parties to attempt to resolve this before that date occurs. But I could see scenarios where, uh, despite H&E's position, the Phillies would continue to use the mascot anyway, certainly not advising them or any other party here to do that. But businesses make, you know, risk-reward-based decisions every day. So a number of things could happen. If, you know, H&E is going to say, you can't use it anymore. Well, the Phillies could say, too bad. We're using it anyway. And then who knows what happens, you know, maybe another round of lawsuits. Who knows what could happen after that? So 
it's really kind of fuzzy as to what would happen in June of 2020 if this isn't settled by then. Who the heck is going to buy the fanatic costume when we own we have all this stuff that's trademarked and he's so he's iconic to Philadelphia. I think that's a bit of a red herring though. You used the word leverage, which I think is really important. I mean, litigation is used to create leverage. The fact that H&E could potentially be successful and take this to another team, I think that sort of misses the point. I think if H&E is successful at establishing that its termination was lawful and that it has a right to reclaim the copyright, I think the value to H&E lies in creating that would create significant leverage in their negotiations with the Phillies, not because they can offer it to someone else in a bidding uh, war, because to your point, Carol, there may not be any bidders, but they could simply withhold it from the Phillies, and that's what their leverage point would be. So this could have very well been resolved between H&E and the Phillies without ever becoming a public matter. It only became public when the Phillies filed a lawsuit seeking declaratory judgment that H&E did not have the right to reclaim the copyright here. What's the advantage of that? I mean, why why didn't they just say, hey, we got to sit down at the negotiating table, got your letter, we don't agree with it, but let's sit down and talk about it. Why? Well, I don't know what happened strategically or what preceded the filing of the complaint. Some of that may be in the complaint, but I don't recall seeing whether there were negotiations or one party may have claimed their negotiations. But I would have expected that there would have been some discussion before um, either party you know, wanted to resort to litigation, because this is very expensive litigation. And if anyone tells you that they know how this is going to play out in the courts, you should look at them with a sort of skepticism, because no one knows how litigation is going to play out, um, especially with a jury, uh, and also with a judge, um, in the case of a bench trial. So and I have to think the Phillies, you know, they filed first, but they decided that they would be in a stronger position if they went into litigation rather than trying to um, resolve this through negotiations or even mediation. You know, what H&E is trying to figure out is how much money the Phillies are making, and that's why they want what's called discovery. You go into discovery, they're trying to get that information because Major League Baseball is not giving that information to them. You know, obviously, H&E wants that information to know if they're getting a good deal. And if they come up with a settlement, then done. This isn't going to happen 35 years from now again. So look into your crystal ball, Peter, and tell us, how do you think this is going to play out? What do you think is going to happen here? You know, I hesitate to do that because I've been wrong before. And uh, I've been doing this long enough to know that, you know, that's uh, difficult to do. That's really difficult to do. You know, I would hope that it would settle, personally, as a Philadelphian and somebody who's followed the Phillies for many years. I would hope they could resolve this uh, in a way that they both feel is uh, fair and equitable, rather than, you know, continuing to, um, you know, to fight it out in the courts in a way that the stakes might just become higher. And uh, for the Phillies, for, you know, H&E, and, you know... uh, for the people who like the mascot, the fans who would, you know, be disappointed if for some reason, you know, the Philly fanatic was no longer as visible. Could you so, imagine? Could you imagine if we lost the fanatic? Um, I don't know. They'd, they'd have to. They'd have, if that happened, they'd have to go <laughs> on, right? <laughs> have people be really? I mean, this guy's been around you know, for 
since 78. Well, I think right? other mascots for other teams have also changed over time. There might have been, you know, or new mascots get introduced. So it's like, you know, I don't want to diminish the significance of the, the fanatic, but brands change over time. Well, to quote our Paul Kurtz, the other mascots are lame and the fanatic is like the best one out there. <laughs> it's certainly worth fighting over, obviously, for the Phillies, but... With losses, there can come opportunities, too. Uh, and I know that might be hard for people to see here. I'm not saying I see it that way, but I've seen that in my my legal career. Peter, thank you so much for talking with us today. We really appreciate it. Sure, Carol. My pleasure. KYW In-Depth is produced by Charlotte Reese. Our production coordinator is Ali Amato. Tom Brickard is the executive producer of KYW Original Podcasts. I'm Carol McKenzie. Make sure to subscribe to KYW In-Depth and help us get the word out by leaving a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening. We'll talk again next week.